Finest Hour, a 40k podcast about playing competitively, teaches you skills and tricks you can use in about an hour. I am your host, Sean Morgan, sometimes known as Abuse Puppy, and I have here on my left and on my right, Shaylin Allen, the good podcast host. Wouldn't you just say I'm across from you? Technically, that is both left and right. <laughs> I banished Josh to the warp, by the way. Yeah, he, uh, three mortal wounds is too much for that guy to take. He is not a three-wound creature. What are you talking about? Crow took him out. Oh, D6? That's <laughs> usually worse than three, in my opinion. I rolled a six, dude. Hey, on average is different from in specific instances. <laughs> so, uh, a subject that had been kind of like tickling my brain a little bit recently, and, and something that I think a lot of our, int- our listeners might be interested to hear about, is if you were given a magic wand that lets you add one thing to the game, either a new model, or a new faction, or maybe a book with a specific piece of fluff or something in it. What would you like to see GW add? So the thing I really, really want to see, and I know they've been kind of doing it with the campaign books, but not in a way I really like, Hmm. is a system of playing games not just like an escalation but like having units level up and gain skills across actual 40k like a real big kill team campaign An, an rpg mechanic essentially yes a legit one for narrative events and such they've experimented with that a lot but it's never worked out super well unfortunately the current version that has rules in i think chapter approved mm-hmm. is where they're hiding these days um they work okay i wouldn't call them great but they do all right it's just so hard to balance with so many radically different units in the game that unfortunately they're kind of like you know you can take this thing and it gives you plus one ballistic skill it's like oh that makes my ludas an awful lot better mm-hmm. you know going from five to four is a lot better from going from three to two mm-hmm. so they've yeah they've struggled with that a lot and i don't think they have a great version i believe you're correct that the vigilist books also have some additional stuff in there as well yeah. and the other magic wand i'd want waved is honestly We need a version of Tabletop 40k that takes an hour. Yeah, which, I mean, technically that's, that, that's Kill Team. Yeah. That's essentially what Kill Team is supposed to be. But I would love to see, I think for my part, that the, the thing I want most is a version of 40k that plays in an hour, an hour and a half. Yeah. That, just a shorter version of 40k, um, because the game is quite cumbersome, it's got a lot of models, and it wants to represent every single one of those models individually, which is awkward. Yeah. Those are the things, like, mechanically from statement, I'd like to have, like, a GT that you could just do in a day. Yep. That's that's the magic wand. It's actually a significant detriment to 40k as a hobby and kind of as a product, because, I mean, you see, like, Magic and Star Wars will blow through an entire, like, 30, 70, 100-person tournament in a single day. 40k cannot do that. It is not physically possible to finish enough games to do that in a single day. Yeah. I, the last thing on my wish list, terrain rules, like real terrain rules. Oof, yeah, yeah, we'd, we'd, it'd be nice to do some terrain rules. I've been kind of throwing that idea around for a while. People keep using 7th and 6th ed rules because they worked. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure I would say what those additions did worked, but that's a whole other discussion. Their terrain rules actually existed. They were better than the current ones, I'll give them that much. So, uh, this week, for those of you who somehow missed reading the episode title, we are going to be talking about a subject that is going to be very familiar to anyone who has played in a tournament, analyzing your opponent's lists. Mm-hmm. It's something you're going to do every tournament, several times a tournament, uh, and you're probably going to be doing it both before a tournament, when you're just sort of browsing through lists elsewhere, and, you know, a lot of other times when your friends post up their lists for you to review and critique and whatnot. Yeah. Being able to pick apart a list and understand what it does and why it works and how you would deal with it is a really important skill in 40k. Uh, And it's not one that's talked about a lot because it's kind of the least interesting part of the hobby. Or is it, though? 
it depends on how you look at things. Um, everyone has a different opinion on what is actually interesting about this hobby, so uh, I won't say that nobody likes it, but um, I think most players think it is kind of a secondary aspect. I think it's a lot of fun. Fair enough. I mean, I really like building lists. I do it all the time, so I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you, but I also know that I am distinct from a lot of the general population of 40k. Before we really get started on uh, our process, because we basically broken this episode down uh, into a, a sort of process that Shaylin and I both follow to some degree or another. Mm -hmm. This is not a perfect outline of what goes through our head before the game, but uh, it's, it's sort of the general idea of things. I'll, I'll just honestly say I don't do it in this order at all, but this is the order we're talking about it in. So don't yes. worry, this isn't the order you need to think about it in. Yeah, you don't, this doesn't need to be a checklist. What this should instead be is a uh, kind of like when you, these are the things you need to know, but you may not necessarily come across them in this order. They may not be all equally important to you, depending on what list you're looking at and what list you're playing. Uh, yeah, and actually, on the thought of what you know, know what you know. We'll start there. Yes. Um, because... If you run across the list and the very first thing you're heading to is like, I didn't even know that was a faction. Yes. Well, you are. <laughs> the way you should look at this episode, if you're being handed a faction you know nothing about, is this is a list of bases for questions you can ask your opponent about their faction. So you can at least get yourself some basic familiarity. Yeah. Without overwhelming them, of course. There's last thing you need to do is overwhelm your opponent with questions. <laughs> right. You, you, you probably don't want to ask a question about every single list. Every single unit in their list, that gets awkward real quick when you spend 45 minutes before the deployment phase even happens. Hopefully what you can take away from this is highlights, the things you do need to ask about. Or study if you're learning a faction. Yes. And, and that is kind of the flip side of this is uh, hopefully the more you do this, the more you become familiar with those units and don't have to do that in the future. Exactly. Um, knowing what your level of knowledge about a faction is is obviously a very important part. And eventually you translate to that annoying shooty strength 5 AP minus 1 broadside gun to smart missile systems. Right. With an ATS. Yes. And and absolutely, like, know how much you know about different factions. Because, like, I can sit down the game with just about any faction and glance over a list and know what every unit in that list is and what its stat line is. But not everyone can do that. Uh, Shaylin can do that with some factions, but not with others. Mm -hmm. uh, and her awareness of, like, I know what that unit is, I don't know what that unit is, is a strength. Yes. And I don't know what that unit's technically called, but I know what it does. Yes. Uh, you, the specifics of, you know, the exact name of every weapon, not actually very important to know. What the weapon does, much more relevant to you. Yes. And the the last thing on knowing what you know is, this is contextual. I always look at army lists in context of the list I'm running. Yes. Because we are specifically talking about you have gone to a tournament and you have been handed a piece of paper with your opponent's list, or you opened up Battlescribe and took a look at the image file that they have uploaded... All of this is going to be in the context of the list you are running, because different lists are going to look at this very differently. If you're a Tau player, you're going to have a very different opinion on what a Calexis does than if you are an Orc player or a Space Marine player. Yes. Or even a Thousand Suns player. Especially a Thousand Suns player. Magnus um, cares a lot more about that guy than most people. Yes. So, on that subject, we'll, let's start this off with the most basic level of assessment of a list— their detachments and factions. Because mm -hmm. the very first thing you should look at when someone plops a list down in front of you is what faction or factions are they running? Yes. Right now, most lists are multiple factions. You typically see soup, especially from the higher level players, yep. uh, because that is a more powerful option. Uh, but you need to know what each of those factions are and kind of what they generally do. And even sub-factions within a group, a Saucia detachment in Tau is really common for a reason. Yes, it is. It's uh, because it's the source of marker lights. Yes, and and if you kind of blinked and said, what's Saucia? Well, that is absolutely an indicator that you should be asking your opponent, what is Saucia? What, is, what do they do? What do they get? What, what did Tau do? And the answer is Tau overwatch like fiends. Right. So that's your first level of things. Look at what is their faction bonus... 
And what is their sub-faction bonus? Because really those two play together. On very rare occasions, you will see mixed attachments that don't have a sub-faction bonus. You should still, in that case, ask, why are they not, why are they giving up their sub-faction bonus? Mm-hmm. Okay, you have three different chapters of Space Marines in this mixed attachment. Why would you do that? You'll probably get the answer somewhere further down this list we're talking about. But yeah. there must be a reason. They didn't do it on accident. Yes. We are assuming your opponent is competent. Yes. You will run across incompetent opponents. We're not going to talk about them because they're not really worth worrying about. They're incompetent. You can probably beat them. <laughs> but at the same time, don't assume that your opponent is stupid just because their list does not do a thing that you understand or like. There's a lot of lists. I'll sit there and be like, I don't understand this, and I'm dead. Yes. Uh, and hopefully, going through this process, you will be able to minimize that because you will understand what they do before they do it to you. Yes. And the other thing that's really easy to look at and should be very well labeled on your opponent's list is their total number of command points. Yes. Which leads into the next thing of what are their powerful stratagems? Like Vect. Everyone knows about Vect. Did they take a black art detachment? You know why they took a black art detachment. Yes. Command points, obviously incredibly important to the game. We've spent several entire episodes talking about their use and even of individual stratagems. There are absolutely stratagems in every faction of the game that define how units are used and how armies play. Uh, Vect is one of them. The orc double shoot with Daka 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 is one of them. Um, Green Tide, also in Orcs. There's lots of these powerful stratagems that we've probably mentioned in a bunch of other episodes that will define how an army plays and what it can do, and they've probably built their army around using these in many cases. Yes, um, that is a great way to tell if an army has good synergy. Did they build around a powerful stratagem? Yes or no. And looking for that and knowing what they have access to and what they can do. That is an observation with mixed attachments, is there's two reasons to take them. Yes. Generally speaking, the first of which is stratagem access. Yep, because a lot of the sub-faction stratagems just need a unit of that sub-faction. Yep, to, to do. And the second thing to do is psychic power access, usually. I actually find the more common one is uh, relics or warlord traits that are unique to a faction. Hmm. Very commonly, uh, people will, you know, want a specific sub-faction's relic mm -hmm. is uh, a, a very usual one. Like the, the Thinking Cap, I think that's still one? The Thinking Cap, or uh, the Vexator Mask in yeah. the Dark Eldar. There's, there's a lot of very powerful relics that people can take. Psychic Powers definitely happens, although that's more specific to Space Marines, mm -hmm. uh, because that's one of the few ones where you can mix multiple factions together like that. Yes. So let's move on to something a little bit more specific, uh, units and their upgrades. Uh, this oh, yeah. should be the next section, because you've looked at the detachments. You've said, ah, they have a battalion and a spearhead and a patrol, and you know that that gives them nine command points. But what they took in those three detachments is obviously very important to their list. Uh, mm -hmm. So you need to kind of go through and look at what their specific units are and what those units are likely to be doing. Uh, headquarters units will almost always have some sort of aura or supportability. Yeah. Headquarters units are taken for two different categories. One is they give you access to something you didn't have, or they're cheap enough to bind your force. Well, yes, and I think that's the... HQ units are the glue of every army, because... That's how they built it in 8th edition, really. Well, yeah, and not only are they required for almost every detachment... Uh, but they usually provide a lot of the bonuses that make an army work. An orc army that doesn't have the ability to advance and charge from a war boss is not really an orc army anymore. Uh, or if they don't have the psychic powers, or if they don't have the various other auras, rerolls to hit, cover saves, other bonuses, HQs give out lots and lots of bonuses. So not only do you have to take them, but you want to take them. So knowing what your opponent's HQs do is incredibly important. Yes. And, you know, psychic powers and all of that kind of stuff usually come off HQs as well. Yes. Um, they're a really big part of every army. And if you want to understand what an army does, a lot of times the best place to look is look at HQs and what they do. Oh, yeah. 
A second thing to know is know where their objective secured is, which is always on a troop unit, but... Usually on a troop unit. It's true. Custodes are a complete exception to this. Custodes get it on other units as well, and it is possible that uh, some armies do not have objective security, even on their troop units, because of the way they've taken detachments. Yes. Not very common, but it can happen. But knowing what units are OBSEC obviously is very important, but also just looking at their general troops... Uh, is going to inform you a lot about the basic capabilities of their units. We've talked about in previous episodes, troops are often what makes a given army good or bad. Yes. It's the fundamental building block in their list. Yep. What, have a look at it. Pay attention. If you don't know what their troops do, chances are you probably don't know what the rest of their units in their army do either, because most units in the army are a variant of a troop. At the end of the day, yeah. Another thing to look at is their vehicles, monsters, their big guys. Yes. What are their big guys up to? What are they like? Are they just there to be a tough annoyance? Do they have them at all? That's true. A lot of armies these days simply don't bring any multi-wound targets like that, but that you still do see them out there. Uh, so looking to what kind of vehicles and monsters you have, because those units are usually much more resilient to your basic guns than anything else in the army is. Yes. You can kill their, you know, toughness five, three-up armor guys with bolt guns if you have to. It's not going to be fun, but you can do it. Their toughness eight, two-up armor guys? Not going to go down to bolt guns anytime soon. Mm. So knowing where those big things are, how many of them there are, and what their profiles are like. Do they have an invulnerable save? Do they have a good armor save? Do mm -hmm. they have penalties to hit? All of these are extremely important for knowing how resilient those targets are, and also what kind of damage they can put out. Yeah. Because a, a Basilisk may not have very impressive defensive stat line, but it will make you cry when you get hit by nine of them hiding behind a building. Yeah, because its defensive stat line is it doesn't need to see you. Yes. And that actually kind of brings us into the next point that I want to talk about, which is where's the enemy's heavy shooting at? Yeah. Not all armies bring it, much like vehicles monsters, but a lot of them do. And again, you don't really care about their las guns unless, you know, they brought a unit of 50 of them. Mm -hmm. uh, but you'd probably do care about their heavy and special weapons that they have scattered around. So look to their various units, and where's that upgrade trooper at? Battlescribe makes this a little bit weird to read sometimes it can be kind of obnoxious but generally people have it relatively well delineated and they can tell you if you ask where's their las cannon at did they give a guy a plasma gun does the sergeant have a combi plasma and this one's really visual too you look at the squad oh that guy's got a gun and the other guys have chainsaws. what's he up to right you might not recognize the gun from sight, but you can probably tell that it's different from their other guns. And almost all tournaments have a WYSIWYG policy. It's what you see is what you get, which means that those guns need to be correctly modeled on each of their troopers who's carrying them. Exactly. If you do get the guy who's like, no, don't worry about it. All of my chain swords are plasma guns, and all of my plasma guns are also plasma guns, except for the ones that are painted red, those are Meltaguns. That guy right there, you, you need to talk to the TO about him. Uh, because that, that that is not okay. Yes. Then the other thing, the other flip side of shooting are assault threats. For example, a big unit of Gene Steelers and Swarm Lord. That's yes. something you have to look at very, very differently than a unit of Gene Steelers and no Swarm Lord. Right. This is definitely the sort of thing that does vary a lot army by army, because some units are a major threat to certain armies and not to others. A smash captain is terrifying to a knight player, but not all that scary to an orc player. Yes, again, context. Yeah, but what kind of units do they have that are good in assault, and what are, what are their sort of stat lines and targets? Yeah. What in your army can they hurt and what are they not good against? How mobile are those units? Exactly. And just general like thought when you're looking at these, how mobile are there any of these units is a good thing to just keep in mind. Yeah, broadly speaking. How fast is their army? Being able to assess how quickly they can move and redeploy and all this sort of thing is definitely a useful key, especially for assault units, but also just for units in general. Oh, yeah. You know, if their whole army moves 12 inches, you're going to have to play a very different game than if it moves 4 inches. Exactly. 
And on that kind of note is uh, bringing back to the basketball thing, indirect fire. Yes. Like, that's a really big rule they're getting around right there. How much stuff yeah. do they have laying around, if any? It's, it's especially important in ITC that has the progressive scoring, uh, but also relevant in other formats as well, just because indirect fire is a very powerful tool in general. A mortar doesn't have a very good stat line, but the fact that it can reach out and hit you pretty much no matter what, uh, that you have no real way to get away from it, is a pretty big deal. It means that you can't hide the last model in a unit just behind some terrain and be like, well, he's safe now. Mm -hmm. That's not an option. So knowing what indirect fire your enemy has is a very important thing to be aware of. A lot of armies don't have any, but the ones that do have it, you are going to care about it. Exactly. Then sort of as a penultimate thing, I think look at what your opponent's big and expensive units are because there's there's a million little categories of like oh they built around this or oh they've got one of these and we can't really go into the detail on every one of those but if you see a unit that says 21 power level next to it you probably want to know what that is you probably care about that unit yeah by the same token if you see a unit that says 39 of this that should raise your attention immediately yeah, because that's at least 39 wounds to get rid of. Yes, and it can cover a lot of board space. Um, big units and horde units can control a lot of board through one presence or another. Mm -hmm. We talked about the different ways this happened in our horde versus elites army. Yeah. Both of them can control a lot of board, and that's very important. So if you see either of those in the roster, and especially if you see several of those in the roster, that needs to pull your attention right away because those units are going to have a major effect on how the game plays out. In fact, you might say they built their battle plan around it, so... In most cases, they will, yes. Yeah, that is a tip-off of what your opponent's thinking. Yes. And the last thing that you should just kind of keep an eye out for, because it's actually really easy to miss, but it can be fairly important, is reserve points. Oh, yeah. It's going to be more popular now that we have assassins. Yes. If you see 85 points short in an Imperial list, they are bringing some sort of assassin down. And you'll probably see 85 points short in every Imperial list. So uh, expect to run into the lot. But Chaos lists also do it to a decent degree. Summoning and various other reserve-based shenanigans mm -hmm. are getting a bit more popular, especially with the bringing in all the Vigilist stuff and the new Chaos units and whatnot. So yeah. Keep an eye on that, because you don't want to get surprised when you, you know, think you understand your opponent's list, and they're like, alright, I'm gonna go ahead and bring in down 30 pink horrors, and you're like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> um, you, don't, you don't want to get caught blindsided by a unit you didn't know they have access to. A lot of people will just tell you, if you say, like, hey, you got 70 reserve points, and they're like, oh yeah, turn one, I'm gonna summon a Poxbringer. Yeah. Like, okay, cool. Uh, what's that guy do? Because maybe you don't know, but they'll usually tell you if they have a very specific plan. If they have like 700 points, they're not going to tell you everything they could do with those reserve points. But at that point, you can't really plan around it. So just be aware that they have a lot there. Uh, yeah, if they have a lot there, they're probably running a summoning list or something. Yes. In which case, you know what their plan is, is to customize the missing part of their army against you. Right. Uh, and we had a whole episode talking about summoning and some of the, the permutations there. We're not going to try and get into it here, but just be aware that there are different kinds of plans for reserve points, and they'll typically fall into either one of those two categories. Yes. The last thing is, and this is something that I always look for because this is the part that makes me so interested and fascinated and just kind of a level of synergy is rule-breaking units or weapons, stuff that's non completely non-standard for some reason or another. Yeah, this is our basically our catch-all for the list, is every army is going to have some kind of wacky unit that breaks the normal rules. It's like, this can advance and still charge, or this guy can move 12d6 inches, but then he isn't allowed to shoot or charge that turn, or I can redeploy him and put him back into reserve anytime I want. Uh, or some other wacky special rule, a gun that, you know, can shoot at things embarked on transports, or some other nonsense like that. Oh, yeah. Um, there are so many weird and bizarre rule-breaking rules in the game that you can't possibly 
expect every single one of them, but know what to look for and kind of know what should raise flags in your mind. If you see a unit that you're like, I don't know what that is, then you should immediately kind of be like, huh, I should ask about that. Because that's really like the core thing here is there's probably going to be something you don't recognize unless you've read every codex and have memorized them all. Mm -hmm. If you have, you probably don't need to listen to this episode. <laughs> uh, you are beyond the level of where we can offer you advice. Actually, uh, they should listen to this episode to be prepared to answer these questions. Probably, yes. But doubtless they've encountered those questions a lot before. For those mere mortals who have failed to comprehend the full entirety of every codex, you're probably going to have to ask some questions, and knowing what units kind of are weird little rules breakers is very useful in recognizing that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, if you don't know which of those units they are, it's fine just to ask. It's like, you can just ask your opponent, hey, do you have anything really weird that I should know about? Like, Savior Protocols on drones is actually an example of a weird thing. Tau sure. just have mass, they can take damage for their battlesuits. And if you don't know that, it's perfectly okay to just ask your opponent, like, hey, what, do you have anything strange I should know about? And they'll probably tell you, do you know how Savior Protocols works, and you know how it interacts with battlesuits? Mm. Uh, because they're probably used to getting that question. By the same token, even if you are fairly familiar with town, you kind of look over their list and you're like, all right, you know, your your battle suits all seem pretty standard. Is there anything strange I should know? And maybe he says, like, oh, do, do you know what counterfire defense system is? And if you don't, definitely ask them to clarify that because you're going to care. Mm -hmm. Be real interested when suddenly that riptide puts 17 hits on you on Overwatch because... That is important to you, I think. Yes. So be be willing to ask those questions. Don't be too proud to, like, oh, of course I understand his list. Just be, be, be willing to ask if there's anything weird going on if you don't know what everything does. Reiterating back to previously, we covered ask the question for the thing you need to know. Don't yeah. be coy about it. Yeah, you're not more clever than your opponent is. If you're like, do you have anything that allows you to reroll ones in a phase other than shooting? Just ask them, hey, do mar marker lights work in Overwatch? Yeah. Because they'll tell you that. But if you get really coy about it, they may give you the technically correct answer that does not answer the question you wanted to know. Also, like, when my opponents do that, I'm like, I don't understand what you're asking me. Yeah, you're usually just making it harder on yourself and on them, so don't bother. <laughs> well, speaking of making it hard on us, I do believe I just heard the bugle call, so we are off to go get sanctioned by the Quartermaster, and we will catch you on the flip side of the episode with some more tips on how to analyze a list. Sean will inevitably have worshipped the porcelain throne by the next time you see him. <laughs> War gamers, perhaps you have an army that you've always been wanting to collect but just don't have all the cash flow you'd like to get all the models brand spanking new from Games Workshop Direct. Or maybe you've got an army you just don't have space in your life to love as much as it really deserves. Well, let me tell you about Mindtaker Miniatures. At mindtaker.org, you can contact the buyer and sell your miniatures for used ones that are perfectly good and fun for everybody. been informed by my superior officers that our meal was delicious and enjoyable, uh, so I I suppose that's what it was. Mine actually was. Mm, well, maybe you and I have different experiences with our superior officers. <laughs> so, we've talked about already a whole lot about the real, just the basic level, looking at the units and what's in the list. So, once you've figured all of that out, 
what you want to do is build yourself a, a coherent picture of the army. It's like, okay, I know what he's bringing to the table. Now what's he going to do with it? Or what do I assume he's going to do with it? So what you're saying is, does the list fit a basic archetype you will find in netlists everywhere online? That's usually a good starting point, uh, because even if they didn't specifically netlist, there are certain combinations and plans within a faction that, that tend to work across all archetypes. If you're playing a Tau army, they're going to want to overwatch you. If you're playing an orc army, they're probably going to be interested in getting into assault. If you're playing a Thousand Suns army, they're going to cast some psychic powers. So understanding what sort of basic archetype they fit into, not just their, within their faction, but also the sort of combined army and what they do. The example of what we keep referring to as the Castellan list is usually some combination of Imperial Guard, Castellan, and often a third thing. Yes, very often some sort of Supreme Command with some punchy HQs, or maybe some extra bodies from something else. But the, the fundamental plan tends to be very similar ac across all Castellan lists, which is why we refer to them all as Castellan lists. Mm -hmm. You put a bunch of bodies and just enough melee in front of a big shooty target and protect it. That's, that's going to be the same plan even if the details are a little bit different time to time. If you can put your opponent into one of these kind of easy mental boxes, that's a good place to start because that gives you an idea of like, oh, okay, now I know generally what he's going to do. The specifics of exactly how he achieves it might be a little bit different, but I understand kind of what's going on in his army. Yeah. And key identifiers are, again, back to like those large expensive units. That's an army that's going to be a board control archetype. Mm -hmm. If you uh, see a bunch of fast moving units, he's a speed archetype. Yes. These things. And this is where a lot of your value in sort of having done your homework ahead of time comes up. Mm-hmm. This is why you should be looking at lists outside of your faction so that you understand what they do and how they go about it. Because you might never, ever want to play Sisters of Battle, but when you run up in against a tournament, you're gonna still, you still need to know how they work and what they can do to you. Yes. So if you have done your research ahead of time, this is where it's going to pay off, because you'll look at it and say, oh, I saw a list that someone posted like this from Adepticon, and I know how this works. Mm -hmm. And that's going to save you a lot of mental effort and strain in asking questions and trying to remember things. Exactly. And it also means that you have a basic idea of how to counterplay just from the get-go. Yes. Because the next question you're going to want to ask yourself is, what is this list's basic plan and how does it intend to beat me? Most lists generally fall under two general ideas of archetypes. Is either They're either aiming to outscore you or just out damage you or outlast you yes outlasting lists typically try to outscore you this mm -hmm. is your your common conscripts or nurgle blob that's just like impossible to kill and will sit on objectives all day yes uh, whereas contrawise a list that intends to erase you on damage is probably going to be your tau gun line mm -hmm. or perhaps some sort of orc assault list or something like this let's be clear all lists are going to try and do both these things they want to score more points than you, and they want to kill your units. Yep. Most of them will have a primary plan that is going to be the thing they are best at. A Tau list can score points, but it's a lot better at shooting than it is at scoring. Mm -hmm. Whereas that Nurgle list that is backed up by, like, three to four demon princes that are all smiting out, those smites are going to hurt, and they're going to stack up real quick, but all things... Even it would rather just kind of hold on objectives and not die. And it's pretty much fine if it doesn't kill you and you don't kill it. Yep. So know what their fundamental plan is and how they're kind of going to go about it. Because that's going to inform a lot of other stuff, especially deployment. Yeah. Also, a lot of armies have special deployment shenanigans. We've mentioned yes. this a million times. Shunt is more like those interceptors. They'll just redeploy themselves and do strike themselves. It doesn't matter where they start. Right. Or, you know, more commonly, you know, actual deployment abilities. Like the Eldar one, the Phantom one? Yeah, Phantasm. Uh, allows them to redeploy units just before the game starts. Or even things like forward deployment on scouts that allow them to deploy out of their, 
their zone or stuff like that. Uh, and we can also count reserve abilities in here as well because that's yeah. obviously going to affect their game plan and hence your game. Armies that have access by even using CP to put things in reserve, that's still really powerful because that's not something that unit had built into its rules. Yes, I've seen a lot of people underestimate that. I was talking, uh, one of our friends over at BiffPod had a game where they are playing Orcs against Tau, and he ended up de-striking three units of 30 boys and a couple other units, put, you know, a thousand points and 99 power level in reserve, and the Tau player didn't really know what to do about that, because I guess they just didn't know that Orcs could do that. Mm-hmm. So be aware of that kind of thing and what it's going to mean for you if they decide to use it. Because you may not know whether they're going to use it, but you have to be aware of the possibility, which is really what we're looking at at this stage of the game. Because this is all the, the pre-game game, as it were. Yeah. Beyond that, I think one of the most important things is like your sort of your next level of analysis here is figuring out which player is the offense and which is the defense. This is something we've we've kind of touched on briefly, but it's uh it's not a super widely talked about concept. The basic idea is if all other things are equal, just as the game happens and it plays out in the expected fashion, which player has the advantage innately? If this is, say, your this, this Tau versus Orcs matchup that we keep talking about, mm -hmm. the Orc player is actually, in a lot of ways, the defender. Because they're just going to get onto objectives and sit there. They don't have to assault the Tau player to win. The Tau player has to push the Orc player off of objectives. So this is the player that has the initiative that is being forced to make the choice. Yes. If you are the attacker, you are the one who needs to change the game. And... You're also probably the one who's lacking the tempo. Possibly. Or seeking it. Yes. You, you are certainly probably taking active actions to pursue it. But the, the, real, the real clutch idea of here is who is going to be trying to claw their way out of the hole and who's standing on top of the hole. Mm -hmm. All other things being equal. And this isn't necessarily who does the advantage favor, or who does the matchup favor, but who needs to change the default state of the game. Mm -hmm. Because if the default state continues, you lose. Exactly. Uh, and this can shift over the course of a game, but specifically here we're looking at who starts with it. Mm -hmm. If you have fewer bodies, the answer is probably you. It's not always, but usually is. Mm -hmm. Because 150 bodies will hold more objectives than 60 bodies. That is just math. Yep. The next stage here is what in my opponent's army is particularly disruptive to the way I play. Oh, yeah. Because like we talked about earlier with all of these sort of rule-breaking rules, there are lots of weird exceptions and special cases and things like that. And almost all armies will have something that is there to disrupt the opponent. Because if you let your opponent just play their game plan, then, like, they usually win. And mm -hmm. if both of you just sort of play your game plan and smash heads, that's not actually a very smart play. You usually need to do something a little more complicated than that. Well, that's the difference between just kind of going through the motions and being intentional. Exactly. And so responding to your opponent's plan and disrupting their plan, trying to stop them from playing the game they want to, is critical to the game. And your opponent is, of course, going to try and do this to you. So look through their list and say, what abilities, psychic powers, stratagems, units, etc. do they have that can disrupt my game plan? If your game plan is sit a whole bunch of stupid little bodies on objectives and just sort of win, and they have a unit of 10 Bolgren... That's going to disrupt your game plan real hard, because your Plague Bears might be tough, but they're not Tanogren tough. No. By the same token, if your game plan is sit with my Ludas and shoot away and clear out the whole enemy army, and they have Vect, that is going to disrupt your game plan. Or the gloriousness of, they have Basculists, they're just going to shoot you and you can't shoot back. Yes. They might be to sit out of line of sight. If your plan is to hide out of line of sight and they've got indirect fire, that's going to disrupt your game plan. Mm -hmm. 
if your idea is to assault and they have something that's minus two to charge ranges or half movement value, that's going to ruin your plan pretty good. And those are the kind of things you need to be looking for, is what can they do that interferes directly with what I want to do? Exactly. I mean, Shaylin's Grey Knights, like, she is going to need to see, like, okay, what kind of psychic defense do they have? Because she relies a lot on getting off psychic powers in order to do work for her army. Sort of. Yeah, I would say it's fairly important. Grey Knights without Smite aren't really even an army at all. Don't, don't get me started on this. <laughs> okay. But tools they have to disrupt what you want to do is really what you are looking for here. I care more about deep strike disruptions. That's also a thing. I mean, you, we have things like infiltrators that allow you to, uh, you know, just prevent from arriving within 12 inches, or various uh, stratagems that allow them to fire an intercept shot. Yep. And try and kill a unit as it shows up. Those are also going to be very disruptive. Exactly. You also, piecing the whole of the list together here, look at what kind of threat saturation they have. Yeah. What are their threats? How many of them there are? Mm -hmm. Those are both very critical aspects of it, because it's like, one unit of three Bulgren, I wouldn't call threat saturation, but it is an annoyance. Sure. It's, it'll, it's a something you have to deal with. As opposed to a full-size unit of Talos walking up the table. Yes. If you see three into three Talos floating up the table towards you, you can bet that your opponent's plan is living off threat saturation there. And you have to ask yourself, okay, what guns do I have that can handle these? Can I assault them? Can I potentially beat them in assault? Can I hold them down? How you deal with that is going to be very important. By the same token, if your opponent brought 150 infantry to the table, then that's also sort of one of these, like, okay... What kind of weapons do I have to deal with this? Mm -hmm. That may or may not be a big issue. Like, if your opponent just brings that unit of 10 Bulgren, and you're like, no, no, it's cool. I have 150 autocannon shots. That's not saturation anymore. Because mm -hmm. your list is prepared to handle that. Exactly. Um, but, on the other hand, if you only have... 24 las guns in your army and you see that they brought 100 orcs suddenly it's like well i think i'm gonna struggle here this is this is gonna be a problem mm -hmm. so you need to assess how their threats compare to the tools you have for dealing with them uh and determine what units are going to be most problematic for you to kill overall Yes, uh, going back to our threat saturation episode is the, what are my gun types? What are their optimal target types? How are these matching up? Yes, because different guns are obviously going to be good at killing different things. And how do theirs match up against me? Yes, that is kind of the flip side of saturation, is what kind of saturation am I attempting to achieve, and which of their guns potentially beat that? We talked about the various heavy shooting and assault things in the top half of the episode, but this is where that all comes into, like, okay, I know that they have nine LAS cannons. Is that enough to kill my vehicles? Yeah. And if it is, like, if I only have two rhinos in my list, how is that going to change my game plan? Exactly. Um, because this is the stage where you need to be looking at what their threats and what their list mean for your game plan. You can also be the orc player with 183 orc bodies learning exactly what Grey Knight Silencer shooting looks like. Sure. The hard way. This this is why you definitely want to ask about stuff like that. Because if you see, you know, oh wow, she took eight silencers. I don't know what those are, but it's probably not important. You're in for a bad time. Especially if I planted them down with a Grandmaster next to them. That gets ugly fast. Yes. And I think that takes us into the final big component of things. is Because at this point, you should have read through your opponent's list and you should know what's in it. And uh, asked any relevant questions if you had something that was confusing or even if you just needed a refresher. Yep. Like, uh, what the heck was the range on that Tau gun again? I do that a lot. I, I know the stats of most weapons and units in the game, but there's always that one that's like, does this guy have three wounds or four? And it's just good to get yourself in the habit of asking those questions, because the more often you're reminded of the answer, the more likely you are to remember it for next time. Yep. But there's one more thing that some of this stuff will be on your opponent's list, and some won't, depending on the specifics of the tournament you're going to, mm -hmm. as there's a bunch of pregame stuff. 
Oh, yeah. Most tournaments require you to list your warlord in your army roster. But he doesn't have to have his trait fixed yet. Yes. Uh, Sometimes. Yeah. Depends on the tournament. But knowing what that warlord trait is and who the warlord is is obviously very important, especially if you are, you know, playing with Slay the Warlord or Kingslayer or some sort of similar victory point mechanic. Mm -hmm. Uh, like Josh going, oh man, I can get Kingslayer off any great, uh, not Grey Knight, but like just general Space Marine Terminator HQ. Yes. But then you're seeing there, it's like, oh, he's got the Curious? Never mind. Right. So, knowing who that is and what trait they have is going to be very relevant. A lot of people build armies around traits. There are some very powerful Warlord traits out there. Yeah, no, I certainly have done this, much to, like, everyone just said, you should build around the Imperial Guard trait. I'm like, no, the Grey Knight trait is so much better. Yes giving those that reroll to charges on all units within six inches really changes the math on deep striking nine inches away. Yeah. Takes you from that 27% to like a, like, 45... 48. 48, yeah. It's, you know, high enough that you can expect to actually pass some charges rather than just failing them all. So you will see people build around specific traits on a specific character. So know what that trait is and what it does and what it means for the rest of their army. Mm-hmm. By the same token, there are some psychic powers which are incredibly important. Yep. Astral Aim is actually one that I have experimented with recently, and I'm sure Shaylin knows just how effective it can be. There are some occasions it's like, oh, you're, you've got all this great cover and you're basically on a two-up save? No, you don't. Yes. And ignoring that line of sight in, in cover is, is really big. Powers like Warp Time that give additional movements. <laughs> There are some very, very strong psychic powers out there, so knowing what they are and what they can do and which ones your opponent's picking is also extremely important to their list. And this is another one of those cases where we really have to reiterate, if you don't know what something does, ask. Ask, and this is a fair occasion because psychic powers are basically a paragraph. Yeah. See their book. Yes. I'd like to read your psychic power. Sometimes when you ask a question, people will be like, oh, it it just, it gives plus one to minus ones, ex- except when you're in cover. And you're like, what? What is that? Can I just read the card? Because a lot of times that'll just be the easier version. And most people are perfectly happy to just hand you their book and let you read that paragraph. Mm-hmm. But knowing the specifics here is often fairly important. Uh, so don't be afraid to ask and have your opponent provide you with rules. And the um, same thing with relics, because relics, again, yes. only have a paragraph, and, like, the angel's wing is the notorious relic that gives you a twofer there. Yep. You probably really care about what that does in many cases. Relics people often build around as well. Mm-hmm. A Tau army really hates the whole, it ignores no Overwatch ever, bye. Yes. Knowing what their relics do is very critical, and one of the important parts that Shay already kind of touched here, but let's let's make clear, they get to change what their Warlord traits, psychic powers, and relics are from game to game in most tournament formats. Not all, but in most. Mm-hmm. And that means that they have customized those three things to your army. They have taken the ones that they think are best against you. That means you probably really care what they do, because they specifically selected them to beat you. Yes. And if your tournament has them fixed in advance, know that before you walk in. Yes, that should be a question that happens well before any of this happens. That should be a question you ask on the Facebook group or send in an email to the tournament organizer. Because whether or not that is the case is extremely important. As we said, different tournaments rule this different way. Some of them say your warlord and warlord trait have to be fixed. Some of them say that you have to fix psychic powers and traits and all that stuff, but you can change whether you use pregame stratagems that give you extra relics and warlord traits from Mm -hmm. game to game. Some of them require those to be fixed as well. It does vary. So know which of these it is, because otherwise you've built your list wrong. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we're going to just put in one more catch-all category here, because there are a lot of other pre-game abilities and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, things like Death Visions of Sanguinius. Oh, yeah. Uh, most Blood Angels players are just going to use it every single game, but they don't have to. They may choose to conserve the command points. Likewise, buying extra relics and stuff like that with a stratagem. There are lots of pre-game stratagems that can modify various things, giving you bonuses or penalties and whatnot. Knowing what those are and what those do is often fairly important, and 
if your opponent does use them, again, just like, ask what it does if you don't know, because they probably chose to use it for a reason. Yeah. You don't know what that reason is, then you could be in a lot of trouble. Mm Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, if you don't know things, as Joshua Death is a very big fan of, is he takes notebooks with him to tournaments. Write down the things you don't know, and if you find out an answer, write down the answer beneath it, even if you learned it the hard way, Mm -hmm. because then you've learned something. Yep. Taking notes is, is definitely a useful thing. That's not personally my style. I don't find that that sort of uh, note-taking is actually real conducive, because I like to have it all internal. Uh, But Josh obviously finds it very helpful. So figure out what your style is for learning these sort of things. If it means taking notes, then take notes. If it means buying every codex and reading through them, do that instead. Mm -hmm. Uh, If it means going online and talking to people about them to learn all this stuff, do that. Uh, the real takeaway you want here is that you, you want to be able to know as much as possible about your opponent's list before they hand it to you. The ideal is they pass your list over to you and you just kind of wave your hand at them and say, no, no, I already know what all that is. Mm -hmm. Also, don't be the arrogant guy that says, I know what all that is. And then you get gotcha 18 times by the Grey Knight player. I hate you. You need to actually know what it is. Don't just like, oh, I think I know what that is, is very different from, I know what that is. Um, If you've never played against something before, you probably don't know what it is. So be ready to ask questions. Yeah. Uh, We reiterated that point a ton of times through this episode because it's really important. Like, ask questions. Empower yourself with that knowledge. Seriously, this is, you are shooting yourself in the foot for no reason by not asking a question. Mm -hmm. And you're giving your opponent a chance to shoot you in the foot as well. Because uh, they probably brought a gun with them. Um, <laughs> another thing here, we we mentioned it sort of in in very brief detail before. There are a lot of different formats for army lists. ITC has kind of started to standardize some of this, but you will run across people who use the full battle scribe output. Ugh. Those people probably should be required to stand in a corner somewhere because that's awful if you're one of those people i'm really really sorry but you need to stop this you can go into battle scribe and just click a couple of boxes there are plenty of guides for it that will give you the shortened output rather than the full output maybe you like using the full output for your own purposes because you don't remember the stats of every one of your units that's fine i understand that i don't have two versions you have the small output for your opponent to see so they don't get overwhelmed and the big output for yourself to reference yes no shame in doing that because i have definitely had many instances at tournaments where one of my friends will come up to me and say hey i don't know anything about this army list because i can't read a word of it And that person and I will spend 15 minutes sorting through a full battle scribe output trying to figure out what the opponent's army is. Because 2,000 point army should not be 20 pages long. No. But if you allow battle scribe to do full output, it will. Yes. And and a thing to know, too, is the question I often ask is, can you please walk me through your army because I don't have time to look over your battle scribe file? Yes. And honestly, if even if you just kind of struggle with the basic output, which, you know, is fair. If you're not used to it, it can be kind of weird. Battle scribe, the way it lists units is kind of odd sometimes. It's often hard to tell. Are there five guys in this squad or six? Because it says Space Marine times five, and then it says Sergeant. Is that five inclusive or five not counting the sergeant? And just ask. Your opponent knows how many models are in their army and what they do. And if, if you're struggling to make sense of their army list, just have them walk you through it. And they'll probably say, all right, there are four squads of five space marines. Four of them have a plasma gun. One of them has a chain sword. They're and all the identical chain- oh, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. They'll be able to lead you through it. They've done this dozens of times before. They know their army list. Yeah. Uh, they can help you out. Your opponent is your guide here. They're usually happy to help. Yeah. And also, uh, a small fact I've observed uh, is I often ask the question, can you walk me through your army list even after I've skimmed over their list and done the analysis? Mm-hmm. Is because that'll tell me what they think is important about their army list. Also can be a very useful thing. I think the the final little like tag-on I would put here is you want to be able to do this quickly. Yes. We've spent an hour talking about this. You do not want to spend an hour at the table talking about this. Oh, no, no. Uh, 
five minutes tops. Yes. Probably less. Especially if your tournament's under three hours, you don't have time. Yeah, you you need to be able to get through this quickly. And that's why we want to put this skill out there and help people understand, like, this is how you go through all these things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because you need to be able to do this quickly and you need to be able to do this many, many times over the course of a tournament. And as an exercise, go look at some netlists online, practice that skill. Yes. We've talked about sort of practice reading army lists before. And especially, like, if you have friends who send you army lists, do this process with them and basically go through it as though you were playing in a tournament. Ask these same questions of them, because they're your friends and they'll give you honest answers and they can help you out with all this sort of thing. But just going through and and doing this, like, okay, what's going on here? Do I understand this list? What, What does it do? What do I need to know about it? is a really, really valuable skill. And if you can't do this, you're not going to do well at tournaments. Speaking of doing well at tournaments and learning skills, Mm -hmm. if you have questions about this or would like us to help you with a list maybe or going to a tournament, you have some questions for us or would like to meet us at a tournament and want to know which ones we're going to, contact us in thefinesthour at gmail.com. You can also contact us on Facebook where we also have In the Finest Hour. Mm Mm-hmm. And we have a Patreon if you would like a little bit more in-depth chat and want to talk to us on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. For five bucks a month, you get access to our Discord chat as well as our private Facebook group. Yep. Where all three of our hosts are on pretty consistently and we chat about 40k, talk about lists, talk about other things, maybe post some stupid memes. <laughs> uh, and post up painting progress and stuff like that from all the members of the chat. It's a, it's a fun time. It's a, a lot of good folks. We also are going to be very soon here. I think they're coming out the same week as this episode, actually. We're going to have the first of our special Patreon episodes. Yes. Um, These are going to be a little bit different format than the regular in the finest hour. It's going to be one or more of our hosts and usually at least one guest. Mm -hmm. um, Just chatting about lists and going through the process of how we build lists. Or a meta-analysis dive. Like, we're going to look at the top things from this really big event and talk about why they work and how they do it. Yep, kind of going through and just the sort of, like, 40k general chat that we often do, but that, you know, maybe some people are interested in because they want to hear what our thoughts on the matter are and want to see this kind of, like, window into our brain processes. That's one of the reasons I am on the podcast and I am an advantaged person to have in your meta is I don't think like other people, so I see things very differently. So, if you're interested, sign up for our Patreon. The first one will be available to uh, everyone. I'm a strong believer in knowing what you're buying, so you'll get to have a preview so you can decide whether or not it's for you. Yep, and eventually the later episodes, we're probably going to do about one per week, although they may be slightly less consistent than that, depending on our schedules and who Mm -hmm. we can get available to get recruited into this. But the later ones will be for our patrons only for the first month of their release. Uh, They'll eventually go out to the full public. Yep. And as for tournaments that we're going to, our local RTTs, Dice of Fury, up in uh, Washington... Uh, there's actually going to be another one after the Dice of Fury. I'm going to try to put on a Razor Valley in early May. Oh, awesome. Yeah, Shailen's going to be TOing again. So that'll be our, our first tournament in May for us here, probably. Um, one I might actually appear at. Yeah. So I figured out how to make it work with work. <laughs> yeah, there we go. And then in middle of May on the 18th, I will probably be going to Storm of Silence. We're still hammering out the last few details on that, but that does seem to be the plan. Mm-hmm. And uh, that following weekend is BAO. Yes. There will be a hot take episode, I promise. Yeah. So, uh, with that, I would like to thank our sponsors for this week. Uh, of course, Dank Muse has provided the very, very funky music. One might say Dank? Uh, maybe I would go that far. <laughs> uh, he does the all the work for our intro and intermissions, as well as the outro. If you want to check him out on YouTube or on SoundCloud, he can check out all of his stuff there. I'd like to also throw out to Rylan Woodrow, who does our amazing art. Yep. You can find him on Facebook, Art of Rylan Woodrow. Mm-hmm. And you can also find our cool episode sponsor, MindTakerMiniatures.org, yep. to buy and sell some used miniatures, get some good deals, and just meet some really cool people. Yeah. 
He is a friend of the show and a really cool guy. I've bought a lot of stuff from him in the past and maybe selling off some armies to him before too much longer here. Funny how this works. Yes, well, you know, 40k rotation. For the final chunk of our episode here, we're going to devote a little bit of time to our new feature, which is listener questions. Yay! Uh, this is the other benefit to being a Patreon, is you, we're each week we're going to take some questions from various Patreons in our Facebook and Discord, and go through and answer some things for them. Let's go ahead and start it off with a, an interesting little meta question here. If the Castellan becomes less effective and possibly less popular, what units should we think about adding and what units should we think that might be counters to those? Are we going to see the rise of the transport meta, maybe? Uh, Shailen, what do you think? We're probably definitely going to see a rise of the mid-class tanks just returning that they were in earlier 8th pre-Castellan. I suspect we're going to get a little bit bounce back towards that kind of style hmm. of play, mostly because the reason they aren't here now is because the Castellan just makes them gone. Like... You'll see Pask a lot more. Yes. You're already starting to see a little bit of that. I think one thing to remember is that the Castellan is not the only heavy anti-tank solution we have in the game right now. No. Even if the Castellan goes away, there's still a lot of other big hitters out there. So don't just assume, like, oh, the Castellan's gone, I can bring eight rhinos now, because you're going to be crying at the end of the day. Yes, uh, because people found solutions to break Castellans, Ergo, those solutions break your rhinos just fine. Right. And while some of those will go away when the Castellan goes away, a lot of them are going to stick around because they're just good guns in general. Dark Reapers are not being brought because of the Castellan. They are still just fine, even if there's no Castellan to shoot at. Alright, so uh, next one. What do you do when units you played for ages gets drastically changed? Now, how to adjust for those Yunari players and just in general? I sit and cry in a corner for about five minutes. Right. Finishing emotionally reacting to it, because you will be emotional, and that's fair. Like, give your spell space to get emotional, and then, in my case, I'm, I have to psych myself up and say, okay, I've got a new challenge, how the heck am I dealing with it? Right. Because, you know, there is a certain amount of reaction to things, and like Shay says, that's, that's only kind of natural. Very rarely is a change going to be the end of the world. It may make things worse, it may make things better, it may alter the way you need to play, but especially the more you play this game, the more resources you'll have access to. Uh, mm -hmm. I've been playing for a really long time. I have, like, nearly complete Eldar and Tau collections, which means that when units become better or worse, I can just shift with what I'm playing. Yeah. Oh, Pranas aren't good anymore? No, put the Pranas on the shelf and wait for a while. Because they'll be good again someday. And also, it can be a time to take a little break. Uh, if it is, sure. if it's like, well, my collection isn't going to place, well, I'm going to try doing some narrative stuff. Or I'm going to start studying other armies in earnest because Grey Knights are in a terrible place and I don't see them getting out of there anytime soon. Right. Also, the, also the question does kind of reference Yanari in general. And my comment to them specifically would be, you're going to be fine. All of those Yanari lists, your units are still good even outside of Yanari. Mm -hmm. um, because you have access to three very powerful factions. Our listeners asked, you've said that several dexes need reworking. Which ones are in need of the most? Discounting Grey Knights as we already know that they need it horribly. Necrons, I would say, need a little more help. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly their uh, get back up mechanic is not very useful in eighth it's pretty bad yeah um that's pretty backbreaking for them i'm just thinking of like the bottom scraping armies that blood angels blood angels yeah no blood angels are in a pretty bad place they have some good stuff that is not focused on a lot but as an army they are pretty bad mm -hmm. uh, all of the other marine codexes are better than them i would probably say yeah so, Space Marines could use a rework, but it's not necessarily because they're bad, it's just because they're bloated with a lot of really useless stuff. Like, there are so many terrible stratagems and awful elite units in the Space Marine Codex. Yeah, I know that there's a lot of early Codex bad stratagem books out there that could definitely at least have their stratagem section reworked. Yeah. Uh, the other one I think I would give the nod to is Chaos Demons. There's there's a lot of redundant units in Chaos Demons, and that's especially painful for players who want to focus on, you know, just one or two of the gods. Because, like, if you are if you decide you're going to play, you know, Slanesh, mm -hmm. you have, like, seven units total, and four of them do the same thing. Yeah. 
any of the really small books probably need an addressing or at least an expansion, I would argue, even custodes. Uh, all right, here's a real question. What's your favorite unit? Uh, not the best or most efficient unit, but just the one you like the most. I think we actually answered this in one of our other episodes at the the intro. Uh, I had said piranhas. I love piranhas. I do love Dreadnights. My very first model that I ever owned was a Dreadnight. Yep. Both the Grandmaster and regular versions. Okay. Though the regular versions make me So let's make this slightly more interesting. What's your, mo- what's your favorite model outside of your faction? Probably the... Admac infiltrator guys on the really spindly oh, the... legs with the giant prong swords. In- infiltrators and rust stalkers. Yeah, those things. They've got, they've got pretty cool little models. I gotta admit, I, their feet make me happy for some stupid reason. <laughs> you like their weird little stick feet? Yes. Yeah, those are pretty good. Man, the the Primark models are really good looking. Like it's Magnus to... does have a really adorable little tail on his butt. See, I just think like. There's so many details from the, like, the the huge, cool-looking weapons they have. I really like the look of Mortarian's big, stupid pistol. <laughs> uh, like, the pistol that is the size of a tank cannon and all that other kind of stuff. There's there's just a lot of really cool detail to, to like there. Mm-hmm. Sassy Nurgling. Sassy Nurgling is great, and, like... Even the even the the loyalist primarchs and the forge world stuff, like Gaiman is a good model. I may not actually like him in the fluff, but it's a good model. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't actually care for any of the forge world or small primarch Gaiman models. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Something about his shoulders and his pose really bothers me, mostly because it's super atomically awkward, way more than a space marine is. I try not to think about space marine anatomy. It's um, <laughs> sad, it's weird. Too. Yeah. Um, and then I look at the Forge World stuff, and it just looks so out of place because they're realistically proportioned, and that just bothers me. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that wraps up all of our questions for the episode. I hope you all have enjoyed listening to things. We will be catching you next week with a very important topic, which is how good a player am I? Mm-hmm. So, I have been Sean Morgan. I've been Shailen Allen. And this is In the Finest Hour. Thanks for listening. Ah! Ah!